As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm Alan if you Olga, were to be able to sit inside the star, it would be very similar to sitting inside a concert hall and listening to the sound waves that propagate into the concert hall. Of course, we don't sit inside stars, so we can't really literally hear it. And uh, some people say that's all the better so, because the sound is, is not like the symphony of an orchestra, but the analogy is there. That's Belgian astronomer Connie Arts. She's pioneered the astonishing ability to listen into the star quakes of distant stars. Not only has this allowed us to learn the star's ages and interior workings, but it's also helped in the hunt for Earth-like planets orbiting those stars. Connie Arts has just been awarded the 2022 Kavli Prize for Astrophysics. A fellow Kavli Prize winner in the field of nanoscience is chemist George Whitesides. His curiosity-driven research has led to dozens of breakthrough technologies. He's now on the hunt for a radical new way to store the tsunami of data the world produces each day. We've worked out some very good methods of storing information just using molecules, and it works fabulously well. We couldn't ask for more. The question now is, can we do arithmetic and mathematics using information stored in mixtures of molecules? And that's the problem we're working on at the time. And will this be useful? The answer is, I don't know. It works. I'll be talking with George Whitesides in the second half of the episode. But first, here's Connie Arts. Congratulations on the Kavli Prize. It's a wonderful honor. And it's a great thing for me because it means I get to ask you some questions about your work and learn what you do. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. It's, a, it's really a great honor. So. To do seismology on faraway stars is something almost beyond comprehension. You're actually getting a sign of sound waves in other stars? Yes, that's that's amazing, isn't it? But, you know, I tend to compare this like uh, it's the same as seismologists do when they want to study the interior of our planet. You know, it's it's very difficult to get information from the interior so you can't drill a hole because you can't go deep enough if you want to know what's inside the core of our earth so seismologists use sound waves created 
by earthquakes. And so we use sound waves created by starquakes. <laughs> it's really similar. With an earthquake, there's a collision of some kind of tectonic plates. Yeah. But that's not happening in the star. What's happening that produces a sound in the star that you're able to detect? Well, so it's it's quite different because a star is, of course, a sphere of gas. Eh? So it's yeah. it's not rocky material. And so... Uh, uh, what, what is happening actually is like, okay, th this gas in these stars is very hot and uh, very turbulent. So it's uh, uh, full of bubbles that uh, that move and these trigger waves. And it's these waves that we can detect nowadays because we have such fantastic space missions that operate beyond the atmosphere of our Earth. When you talk about bubbles in the interior of a star... It makes me think of the bubbles in a pot of boiling water. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So what happens now? You, they, they reach the surface of the star, which you're able to see, yeah. with, especially well with a space mission telescope. What kind of a disturbance are you seeing that you know that bubble has hit the surface and is causing a star quake in a way? Yes. So I like your analogy with the... Uh put a water uh, kettle on a, you know, on a stove, at a certain point, it, you, you make it so hot, you give it so much energy from the bottom that it starts boiling, right? Now, think of the analogy in a star, but then it's not water, it's gas, right? Mm. But, you know, there is so much energy that it starts bubbling. And so this gives these tiny little up and down motions at the surface of the star. And they are really tiny. And you're able to see that from this incredible distance? Well, yes, it changes the light a little bit, uh, tiny little bit. It's typically uh, one part in a million. Wow. You know, that it's amazingly small, but with a good instrument that has that capacity, you can measure these tiny light variations. So those measurements, yeah. like, like the again with my pot of boiling water... There's a lot of bubbles happening all the time yeah. at intervals that create a pattern for you, yeah. which, which, you, which you've, you've kind of called a, a symphonic experience. Yes. Huh? yes. If we could listen in, if we could be in, this, in the star, we'd hear that pattern, that almost musical pattern. Well, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. You've said that, that, that musicians actually consider it a kind of musical pattern, huh? Yes, because it's, you know, I, I like to bring this story to the people, even young children. So I always make the analogy with music because it's actually sound waves that you hear. And, you know, if you were to be able to sit inside the star, it would be very similar to sitting inside a concert hall. Mm -hmm. Of course, we don't sit inside stars. We, <laughs> we watch them from a distance, right? And there is, there is a vacuum between us and the stars, so we can't really literally hear it. And uh, some people say that's all the better so, because the sounds, you know, some, some uh, musical artists find it incredibly interesting, but, you know, the sound is, is not like the symphony of an orchestra, but the analogy is there. So, indeed, every star has its own um, sound, its own eigenfrequencies, as we call them. Right. So you can hear if it's a big star or a small star. Yeah, so, yeah. By measuring these frequencies, we know if the star is big or if it is small. 
And that tells us something about how old it is. So, you know, we humans cannot listen to these frequencies. So we had to shift them to bring them into the audible range of humans. We multiplied the frequencies of the solar quakes by a factor of 10 to the 5. And then you can listen to the sound of the sun. The sun for me is a quiet, well-behaving star. That's good for us here on Earth. And that's why it's <laughs> so nice for us here. <laughs> but as the sun grows older, it will become a bigger star and a bigger musical instrument plays lower tones. So you're actually going to be listening to the star quakes of a red giant Again, we shifted with the same factor 10 to the 5 to bring them in the audible range. And then you can hear what I call a cosmic bass instrument. The final sound wave, uh, the final sound file, is a tiny little star that is composed of helium. So it's a, it's a cosmic piccolo. So we can make the connection between the size of a star of a certain mass and its age. And, and that's how we deduce from the frequencies of the oscillations of the star how old it is. So that's a really powerful tool for us in astrophysics because in general it's very difficult to age date stars. So that's something we have uh, appreciated the past decade from space astroseismology. And that's a tremendous advantage to be able to, to tell how old the star is, particularly stars that have planets. <laughs> because, you know, you if you want to understand or search for who knows life elsewhere in the universe, you, you want to know how old the planets are. And you can only do that by knowing how how old the, the, the host star is of the planet. You're actually taking an important part in a new project called PLATO, mm -hmm. which is related to discovering exoplanets. Yeah. That are exoplanets in particular that are Earth-like. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So PLATO is really dedicated to find copies of the Earth uh, revolving around copies of the sun. And so our, our sample of that type of uh, exoplanets is really still very small uh, at the moment. And we want to have a b far better view of how common systems like our own solar system is, how uh, the interplay between the different planets in such a, such a system is, how uh, circumstances for life occur in these exoplanetary systems. So we, we want to get a, a, a really big sample of that type of uh, star-planet interactions. And that's, the, that's what Plato is for, actually. Yeah. So far, there have been, I think, 5,000 exoplanets found. Among them, how many candidates do you think there are for their being Earth-like? Well, really, really copies of the Earth that are... There's actually none, I would say, or really 
copies of the Earth because most planets that have been found are sort of like, well, we call them mini Neptunes. Uh, There are already quite uh, a number, but most planets are bigger, are are Jupiter-like planets because they are easier to find. So Mm. these these big gaseous planets, that's not where you expect uh, life forms like we know them on our own planet. So we really want to go for rocky planets that have masses that are typically like the Earth's mass. And and these are very scarce so far. We, we need to find many more of them. And so that's actually what, what Plato is being uh, built for. The idea that there are planets out there, some number of them that are so much like Earth, yeah. that there's a chance that there's life on it, is a remarkable thing to to consider it's almost like being seven or eight years old and wondering if there really is a Santa Claus going to come to yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what, aside from that titillating expectation or wonder, there's the problem of if you find one, how far away is it likely to be and how long would it be likely to take to go to it? Yes, well... We can't go there. You know, the stars are so far away. We cannot even uh, express it in kilometers, let's say, or in miles. It's just inconvenient because it has so many zeros that you cannot even pronounce the number. And so it's not a matter of us humans flying out there. That will not work. Not not with the present technology. I think I read somewhere that you said with the present technology to get to one that would probably be the nearest, who would take 142,000 years. Yes, something like that. And that's the nearest star, you know. But that's not the issue of us uh, um, working on the on the curiosity of the universe, you know. It, it's, it's, uh, it's just very appealing thought to, to search for evidence that there is life out there somewhere for me that's not in the first place to travel there it's just to understand how life comes to be and how it came to be on our own planet you know as soon as you start having other planets that have uh, a good circumstance for life you all of a sudden will understand way better how how our life here has originated and what we should do to preserve it maximally because that's that's for me a key issue so in order to understand that you do not have to travel to say hi elsewhere you know you have to do <laughs> you have to try and do some measurements of the atmospheres of these planets you know like how is the atmosphere composed what can we do to make sure we preserve optimal circumstances here on our own planet like you know so that that couples to some uh, studies of, of of the climate uh, to me, so I would I would uh, rather stay here and understand well from a distance what is happening uh, elsewhere. Uh, say to 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 learn how to deal with our own uh, host here. That concern for the planet that we live on makes me think of another of your concerns, which is. You're concerned for young women scientists. Yes. <laughs> yes, I am deeply concerned and uh, working on that on a daily basis, let's say. Well, yeah. how, what do you do? Uh, I try to be a role model 
for uh, young girls, but above all, I try to uh, trigger their curiosity because curiosity is what makes our humans unique, you know, and it drives innovation and technology for me. So what I tend to do quite often, I just had a fabulous uh, experience. Uh, I called it a ladies at space experience. You know, uh, I put 100 girls of uh, 16 to 18 year olds in a room with 15 women who work in space science. Hmm. And we had speed dating conversations. And I do this type of like small scale things to... Uh, to make these girls uh, not be scared of uh, hunting their dreams because many of them said like, oh, yes, we love working on the universe and it's cool because we don't know how it works and it's interesting. But then they don't start studying um, science and technology because it's, it's thing, they think it's, it's for boys and not for girls. So I'm trying to take away these, these barriers uh, by encouraging them to do what they found, find most interesting. And, and I so, think many, many yeah. young women assume that they're not going to be good at mathematics or interested in it. Mm -hmm. And that's really at the heart of your work. Are you able to share that love yeah. of math with them at all? And it's, it's, math is one of the hardest things to communicate, I think. Well, uh, but th that's super fun, you know. I, I love uh, mathematics, so I, I dedicatedly tried to find a school where I could have nine hours of mathematics per week <laughs> because I loved it. <laughs> and that was just for the fun of it. Uh, and for fi in physics, it's it's similar. Like, it's, it's so fun. And what I try to convey to these uh, young girls and women is like, yeah, we, we work on super interesting projects and we do it as a team. You know, for me, for me, um, team spirit is, is the dominant daily uh, reason why I love my job. And so, you know, I try to make it clear to, to young girls that uh, it's really great fun and they should not be scared to, to, uh, to take studies uh, like that. Because after all, if you look at, at secondary school results, you know, it's the same everywhere. Right? Girls are at least as good in math as boys. So there's no reason why they would not take up these studies. Huh? And I, I'm trying to hold conversations with them, you know, because conversations work. And it's, it's you know, it's small scale activity, perhaps, but it makes me happy if I can motivate these young girls. So That's and, great. Yeah. I was looking at some tips you had. Uh -huh. There were very practical ones like make sure you train your partner in doing an equal share of household tasks. Yes. Don't necessarily <laughs> assume you have to follow your partner to another part of the world because that's where that person's job is. But then there, there's one that fascinated me because I wonder how you would adopt it. Don't adapt to the men's style. Let them adapt to your style and needs. Yes. How do, you, how do you go about that? Oh, well, let me give a very practical, pragmatic example. You know, when I had two uh, young kids and I was uh, a postdoctoral researcher and or, uh, you know, it, it was damn hard for me to do my job because traveling is not so easy. So what I did in my collaborations, I, I simply asked uh, some uh, really open-minded uh, male collaborators to come and visit Leuven instead of me having to travel to them. I never got a no from these men, but they were never asked 
asked that question. So, you know, uh, you know, in our profession in academia, it's very important to get, you know, experience abroad, etc. And like nowadays, I'm a, I'm a prototype of the international scientist. But I also got many influxes of, of male collaborators coming to me. We even wrote a book uh, with uh, two, I wrote a book with two male colleagues. They were more senior. We did it in our house partly because my kids were still young. Why would that not work? I mean, I, uh, you know, sometimes there are people who, who see problems that are easily solvable. So I just tend to solve them <laughs> on a daily <laughs> That's basis. Great. That's what I'm paid for, you know, to solve problems. So <laughs> why, uh, why not do it in the most practical way? This is just one, one type of, uh, of, uh, Practicality. Another one, like when I, in my early stage career, I got this big grant. And uh, the first thing I did, you know, from the grant money was, uh, well, first uh, to hire PhD students because I like working with them. But in parallel, I bought this polygon system to do video conferencing. You know, I'm talking... 25 years ago now, I mean, nowadays with COVID, we all do that all the time. We're used to it. But I started doing that like when my kids were very small babies. So I just bought this system. And like then I got the command from the university. Oh, nobody has asked us if this allowed to use the money for that. Well, I, I'm just doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. Yeah. These are. This is what I mean when I say don't adapt to men. Let them adapt to you. So... I, I just, you know, think of very practical issues. That's uh, so great. You, you <laughs> see not only yeah. into the heart of the stars, but into the heart of the relationship between men and women. That's so yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this time together. It's been yeah. a wonderful conversation. With uh, pleasure. When we come back from our break, I'll be talking with George Whitesides, a 2022 Kavli laureate in the field of nanoscience. His long career has led to breakthrough after breakthrough in areas from electronics to medicine. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience that transform our understanding of the very big, the very small, and the very complex From scientific breakthroughs like the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and the detection of gravitational waves to inventing new fields of research, Kavli Prize laureates push the limits of what we know and advance science in ways that could not have been imagined. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now on to my conversation with George Whitesides. Well, first of all, congratulations on the Kavli Award. That's just wonderful and so wonderfully and fully deserved. Well, I'm delighted that it's happened and particularly delighted to be doing it with Ralph Nuzzo and others. So it's a big deal for us. One of the things that I love about what I've seen of your lectures and read about you is that you really seem truly concerned with communication. Yep. As deep and as broad as your learning is and your experimentation, your inventions, it's important. It really is important to you, isn't it, personally, to communicate your science well? What's important in two ways. One is that it is important that scientists who, after all, are being paid by the public communicate what they're being paid for. And then the second thing is that science is really quite wonderful. So the more the more ideas that one can get, the better off one is. My wife, again, is is in love with astronomy. And she every couple of days, she comes in with some picture of a black hole or something of that sort. And she's just, you know, two feet above the ground because science has done it again. And, you know, more of that and less of the horrors of the world would be good for everyone. You said it. One of the things that is, I think, a real mark of your caring about communication is every time I've seen you start a lecture, you start by telling us what you're going to talk about. And then the very next thing you say is, and why should you care about this? Right. So maybe that's a good place to start our conversation. Take, for instance, the the, the amazing sounding advance called the lab on a chip or a lab the size of a postage stamp. What is there about that that we can care about To answer the question of why you should care, a little bit depends upon knowing how things are done now. And nanoscience is one of the most highly developed technologies that one has. And if you look at cell phones and, you know, things of that sort, computers, desktop computers, from the point of view of a technologist as opposed to a user, you are simply swept off your feet by what the people do who are able to make the chips that go into making these devices work. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And then you take a step back and you ask, what is the factory like that makes them? And it's staggering in its expense and its complexity. A modern fab that is fabrication facility would cost a billion dollars. And that speaks to the complexity of the process that goes into making these things. So that one of the objectives that we had was to make it possible for people who are, you know, don't have a billion dollars in spare cash sitting in their pocket to be involved in nanoscience and make very, very small things without breaking the bank at the same time and without requiring that they learn an entirely new set of skills. So you're able to actually deliver all of the machinery that a lab uses to diagnose an illness on the size of a postage stamp? Is that, is that an exaggeration no, of what you're doing? That, that's an exaggeration, but it's a, point, a step in the right direction because taking the lab on the chip as an example, what one can do is to make structures that compact a lot of the functionality that's needed to do diagnosis into very small forms. So that basic idea of taking things that are doable but very complicated and require specialized equipment and are basically excluded from most workers in the field and making it readily available to anyone who wants to work in it 
is part of the story. And so accessibility is a key. Simplicity, economy, all of these kinds of things are basically good things when you're thinking about broad application. I was interested to read that as you were growing up, you were working in your father's chemistry lab. Yes. Cleaning glassware, which I read you found soothing. It's it's both soothing and satisfying. The nice thing about glassware is you start with a dirty piece of glassware and you end up with a clean piece of glassware so you know where you've gotten somewhere. (laughs) Well, here's here's where I got in chemistry class in college. I spent so much time trying to break glass pipettes cleanly with my fingers that at the end of the day, all I had was bloody fingers and no experiment. Right. I also learned in a very primitive way how to blow glass and put things together. Wow. And it was always better to get somebody who was a professional to do it. But then you, I I read, did this show you wanted to major in English or you were thinking of it rather than science? Yeah. I love, I love the spoken and written word, the things that you can do with writing and speaking and your particular interest in making science understandable requires words. You just really can't get get along without them. So, you know, English is a way of learning how to do that. The trouble with English is that you basically, I think, I at least have much more fun doing science and having English come secondary rather than the other way around. I was I was interested in a talk you gave where you were emphasizing the importance of the writing of the paper explaining the work. Oh, yeah. And that you said it should happen, it should begin as the experiment begins. Why is that? Well, writing the paper is explaining to yourself in words what you're doing. And uh, that's a crucial part in planning what you will do in the future and interpreting what you've done in the past. And you can put that in any order that you want to. But if you can't explain it to yourself, you can't explain it to someone else. And people who are good physicists, I think, will often work entirely in equations. But in a field like chemistry or material science or you know some of the other things that we do, words are extraordinarily useful in explaining what's going on. I mean, the, the process of understanding what you do in science is an important part of understanding that in science, often the most unexpected results are the most valuable. So that if you can appreciate what an unexpected result is without explaining the result, then you're a remarkable person. But for most of us, we do experiments. The experiments sometimes set out to do do what we set out to do. But often the experiments do something completely different, completely different. And explaining what it is that this completely different part of things does is one of the joys of doing science. You get to come across stuff that you really didn't expect, which tells you something about how the world works. And you can only do that if you explain it in words. That reminds me of something that I think you care a lot about, which, which I think you've, you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation so far, which is the usefulness of the science. And yet at the same time, I think you value very much basic fundamental science to what doesn't necessarily have an apparent usefulness at the moment. 
How do you how do you see them in contrast to each other or complementing? I don't each see other? them in contrast. I see them as part of the same story. When one starts in fundamental science, fundamental science to me is science that's directed toward understanding how the world works. So it's basically understanding driven and curiosity driven, and it's something which you do because you want to know how things work. But it requires resources and effort, and asks young people to sign up to do something which is difficult and demanding for a reason. I mean, if they want to make more money, they can go to work for Goldman Sachs or whatever. And so that basic issue of there's nothing more interesting than science to me. And it's partially interesting because of the things that can be done with what you learn. Mm. So to the extent that you can learn new things and then apply those new things to solving problems, that's a very good thing to do, I think. And there's nothing like curiosity to keep the whole thing interesting and endlessly entertaining. So I'm completely for curiosity, and I'm completely for the process of starting from somewhere. And you can start from your understanding of what the world doesn't understand, you know, an important question. Or you can start from something that the world needs to have fixed, if it possibly can, to continue on. And then you are constantly surprised by what comes out of the work that you do. And that constant surprise leads to good new problems to work on. And so you're off on a ride. It's a good story. One of the things that struck me in uh, watching one of your lectures was the problem of memory in the world of computers. I mean, here we have the task before us of saving everything that's ever gone onto the web. That's a, an important fact to remember, along with all of the other stuff on the web that's, that would be better never having been exactly. said because it's n nuts. But we got to save it all. How has nanoscience offered us an opportunity there? Well, the approach that we have taken, and there are many approaches to this, one approach is simply to make the features that are used in conventional technology, which works very well, make them smaller and denser and cool them more efficiently and you know do whatever you do. Hmm. And so there are very smart, very competent people working on that particular problem. So how about thinking about alternatives that use something totally different? And so we've worked out some very method, very good methods of storing information just using molecules, not biological molecules and certainly not capacitors. And whether this will be useful for something as a technology, I don't know. But as a form of science, it's really pretty remarkable. We've made some systems that just use information stored as mixtures of molecules, and it works fabulously well. We couldn't ask for more. The question now is, can we do arithmetic and mathematics using information stored in mixtures of molecules? And that's the problem we're working on at the time. And will this be useful? The answer is, I don't know. Hmm. It works, and it answers a problem that needs to be worked on, which is not just the problem of uh, energy usage in terms of um, stored information, but also the, you know, the risks of somebody getting in and messing with your information in one or another way. And this is not a problem for, it may be a problem for you. It's not a problem for me. You can mess with my information. It doesn't make a lot of difference. 
But if you happen to have an encrypted database or you're working with NSA or it's something else, then you can ask questions of whether better methods of doing storage and hiding of information is a good thing to do. And I happen to think it's a good thing to do, but there are others who will maintain differently. But in any event, finding alternatives to ask the question with is, is good. So we have solved part of that problem, and part of the problem remains to be solved, if it can be solved. Your interests are so far-ranging that I'm really tempted to ask you one of the seven questions we usually ask at the end of an interview. We don't have time to ask all seven questions, but I'm really curious, given the, the depth and range of your interests, how would you answer the question, what is it you really wish you understood? If I had one question to understand and answer completely, it would be the origin of life. Mm. That's the most important question I know right now in science. Purely curiosity. And we've learned all sorts of things about how life might might have started. And there's some good working hypotheses now, but no one has anything that's close to life crawling out of a test tube. So we don't yet really know how life started. But it obviously started somehow. And you follow this route and you get into quite active discussions with people who have more uh, more formally religious points of view than at least I happen to have. And uh, so the, the question of if you explore in that direction what you end up with, and it's an example of what we were talking about earlier, whereas you may or may not end up with some unambiguous, simple proof of life how it starts, and that would involve life crawling out of a test tube. But if, if you can find ways of making matter adapt itself to something so that it begins to be something like alive, you can imagine the range of things you can do with that kind of information and that kind of knowledge. And so I'm very comfortable working in that project because it has to me enormous implications for where science and technology could go if that particular door were opened. So do you think as you consider the idea that you that you, your group may throw some light on the idea of how life begins, do you consider at the same time cautionary measures to make sure that it's done in a responsible way when, it, when and if it's done? Or do you think that's something to be worried about later? I don't know that one can predict how this is all going to come out. I think it makes an enormous amount of sense to teach people who are going to be scientists or technologists more about ethics. Because ethics is an extraordinarily interesting subject and uh, it gets around a lot of the problems that morality gets around. Mm -hmm. But so ethics is a subject that everyone can understand and you know, at least you can ask the questions. So what you want to talk about is science that you do because you're curious about what the result is, but you don't know what it's good for. And then the equally difficult task of once you have a form of science in which all of a sudden there are things that you understand which you didn't understand before, what can you do with it? And both of them are important, and both of them have been extremely valuable in getting humankind from the dark ages to here. Well, you've certainly helped us along. Thank you so much for talking with me. I had a wonderful time in our conversation. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I'm a deep, deep admirer of the work that you're doing 
in trying to make it possible for scientists to learn how to talk about what they're doing in ways that people can understand, people who are not scientists can understand. They don't know anything more important. That's very kind. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Hope I hope I see you again before too long. Connie Arts is professor in the Institute of Astronomy at KU Leuven in Belgium, where she's also vice dean of communication and outreach at the Faculty of Science. George Whitesides is professor of chemistry at Harvard University an inventor holding at least 130 patents and co-founder of over 12 companies, he's been named the world's most influential chemist. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I have a fun time comparing experiences in television comedy with James Burroughs. Jimmy Burroughs directed over a thousand episodes of network comedy shows, including Cheers, Friends, The Big Bang Theory, and Taxi. When he was casting Taxi, he had a memorable moment when Christopher Lloyd came in to read, as many actors do, dressed for the part. Chris Lloyd comes in to read for Reverend Jim. Uh, he was uh, uh, he was in one show in uh, in the first season. He performs a ceremony to marry Lodka to a hooker so Lodka can stay in the country. Lodka was Andy Kaufman. He was a foreigner. Chris Lloyd comes in for the audition with ratty sneakers, holes in his blue jeans, uh, a shirt open to his navel, uh, a jeans jacket, his hair completely a mess, and does that voice, the Reverend Jim voice, And we all go, oh, my God. And so we hired him. We hired him when he left, left, called his agent, hired him. He showed up for rehearsal, for the reading, all the days after that, in the same outfit. (laughs) He didn't want to lose the job. (laughs) He didn't want to lose the job. (laughs) James Burroughs and how he created some of the most memorable moments in television comedy next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. 
Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.